Gin Alley. Muggery. Molly! Backgammon player! Oi! <laughs> Watch out, it's only Maureen. Pull your neck in. Much improved. Now! Oye! Oye! Welcome, all ye gorgeous Ben Georgians, ye backscuttlers, ye muff divers, ye fingersmiths. Welcome to Ducky's Queer History Club. Princess Podcast. What? Wait, 18th century podcast? Hear the Molly House, we drink and dance and treat each other kindly. And dears in every room a bed, come let us bugger finely. Hello, queer history harlots, and welcome to the Princess Podcast. I'm EJ, Ducky's queer history curator. I'm Zed, Ducky's graphic designer, and for the last couple of years, one of the queer community princess researchers. And I'm Delfino Naylor. I identify as a blood-sucking bisexual vampire, and I use the pronoun dead. I've lived through the 18th century, so I speak from experience. And together with the rest of our merry band of queer history buffs, we've been going around London to some of the poshest museums behind the scenes to rediscover what some people call hidden queer history, but what we'd rather really call out as just plain censored. All the queer tomfoolery of the past is, of course, right there for the taking. And that's precisely what we've done to bring you this podcast foray into queer 18th century London. Now, EJ, aside from our love of high-quality Egyptian cotton sheets, why are we calling ourselves Princess? Well, Zed, the Princess Project has been affectionately named after our favourite 18th century criminal gender offender, Princess Serafina, who infamously took her shag to court for nicking her trousers halfway through the deed, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, in Chelsea Fields. Ooh, this trouser stealing was happening all of the time. For what you'd call the working classes, clothes were very expensive and considered an asset. I lost my favourite chinos that way. (laughs) Well, I think what's really amazing about Princess Serafina is that throughout this trials of trial, our 18th century hero them, as I like to prefer to call them, was referred to by witnesses as she and the princess, despite working as both a gentleman's servant and butch, red-blooded butcher in the day and turning tricks at night. We'll be following the princess through her court trial to all of her favourite pubs and exploring the sexy queer underworld of the Georgians. Queer history buffs, here we are with chapter one of our princess podcast. Yes, an 18th century podcast. In this episode, we're talking about Molly's macaronis and he's trumpets, those quintessential characters from Georgian queer history. If we look at their escapades closely, we can see that there's really loads to investigate. There's class, there's gender, there's fashion, and a dash of what we'd recognise today, I think, as the birth of London's gay subculture. Mm, Now, I have a fun fact. Did you know that this was when the word sodomy changed from a verb, as in an act, to do, into the noun sodomite, the person who did the deed? True story. 
That's right, Delfino. And the cool sodomites would have hung out in one of the city's many molly houses, as queer pubs were known back then. Typically, a molly house would have a bar downstairs, a couple of beds for shagging upstairs, and some space for onlookers, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Weird. Um... And the really fun ones had a dressing room for donning ladies' attire. They were basically the prototype for the RVT. As well as being drinking dens and knocking shops, they would have entertainment on special occasions. A particular crowd pleaser was a reenactment of a heterosexual lifestyle. This included a wedding with someone in a bridal gown, a faux honeymoon shag with the newly wedded lovers, and the whole event climaxed with the very graphic birth of a wooden spoon. <laughs> Amazing. I love that one. Um, Molly, <laughs> houses... <laughs> <laughs> Molly houses were everywhere in London. Queer historian Richter Norton, who has helpfully held up a gas lamp for us to navigate London's dingy Georgian streets, mapped out 21 in the year 1731. And those were just the ones that he found hard evidence for. There would have been loads of others. And nowadays they disappear without a trace faster than you can yell, Knights are hell! <laughs> so true. Um, according to St. Richter, they were in the west of London in Lincoln's Inn Field, Covent Garden, Chase Market, Drury Lane, Fetter Lane and Saffron Hill, right the way over to East London in Smithfield, Newgate and St. Paul's, up to Moorfields and down to Stocks Market. Oh, it's just too much. Just the memory of it is giving me a hangover, but nothing like the ones that John Meeson and John Dix had. Did I tell you about them? Oof, that was a big night. Oh, the boys who drank ale till they vomited and were spied upon having sex. <laughs> well, it's a bit dodgier than that. It appears Meeson had passed out by the time Dix dipped his wick, but they had been on a pub crawl where they'd been spotted with their hands in each other's breeches in numerous taverns from Flint Street to Chancery Lane. They were reported to the authorities by two peeping Toms who watched them doing it through a peephole in the Molly House and they were found guilty and sentenced to standing in the pillory near Temple Bar and two years in jail. The pillory was super nasty. People threw bricks and shit and dead animals at you. Just awful. Still, however, not the worst thing that could happen to you in the 18th century. I remember the raids in 1726, Mother Clapp's Molly House, which was totally my favorite, got busted and six people were hanged at Tyburn. I would have been there that night, but I had a migraine. It's no wonder gay folk like Meeson and Dix drank till they puked. It was, after all, the time that the gin craze gripped Britain. Oh, come on. Have you been down the Waitrose Spirit R recently? The gin craze (laughs) is alive and well, my friend. Yeah, fair play, fair play. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone knows the nickname Mother's Ruin, but did you know Cuckold's Comfort or Lady's Delight was also uh, names given to gin? Or that there was a carved wooden cat machine called the Puss and Muse? that for a coin would make gin flow out of a metal tube under its paw, because that is proper theatrical. None of this putting ice in a slice in it that you have these days. 
I did read about the real-life case of Judith DeFore, who at the peak of the gin craze in 1734 was convicted and executed for strangling her daughter so that she could sell her child's clothes for gin money. So while it might appear, okay, you ready for it, that DeFore was throwing the baby out with the gin water. In actual fact, I think, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, it really does highlight the demonisation of addicts living in poverty that we still see today in the heart of London, particularly at the moment. It's nothing new. Yes. We know We know as well that DeFore was poor because her daughter's clothes um, were actually issued by a poor house. Um, and it is, we think it's probably Judith DeFore who was depicted with a baby falling out of her arms in William Hogarth's famous 1751 print Gin Lane, um, the one that our princess researchers went to see at John Soane's museum last year. Yeah, which, and, and it, that's worth noting because... It's very easy to laugh at Hogarth's Gin Lane, but actually it's it really is social commentary. The moral police who were actually responsible for whipping up the gin panic called themselves the Society for the Reformation of Manners and were delirious with worry that the working poor were drinking so much gin that it was a threat to public health and safety. To add to the panic, there are two recorded cases of women apparently necking so much gin that they drowned in it and then spontaneously combusted, as in actually burst into flames. Yeah, right. Sounds like typical Tory propaganda to me. (laughs) Sounds like the RVT. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's one thing, but it does actually sound like they might have had a point about health and safety. Everyone drank from morning until night. Even eight-year-old kids were hitting the bottle. All still within a good, clear class structure, though, so don't worry. Poor people went to alehouses. The gentry hung out in taverns that served wine. And if you were proper posh, you would have been found pissed up in an inn that served fancy cordials and food as well as wine. Oh, like Wellerspoons. Nice. What? I love their burgers. <laughs> Back then, though, it was hard to get clean water. So in fairness to those involved, uh, it was safer to drink booze, or at least that's what people told themselves. I'm mostly teetotal, but I was shit-faced for most of the century because everyone's veins were so full of gin. (laughs) Honestly, it was such a hard drinking culture. You couldn't find a sober victim and people were deliberately getting drunk just because they wanted to be drunk. Who even does that? I have no idea what you are talking about, Tofino. I do think that it's worth just for a minute calling out the classism that's at play. It wasn't just the supposed well-being of the poor that was being scrutinised by the lawmakers and upper echelons of society. I mean, to be honest, which one of them actually gave a fuck, right, about the well-being of the poor people. I think part of the moral panic surrounding the consumption of gin was actually class protectionism, if you like. The idea that the poor were becoming luxuriated through the consumption of the same products as those of the wealthy and that this ultimately could lead to social unrest and an uprising because they wouldn't understand their place in society and think themselves above their station in life. And this is where the Society for the Reformation of Manners got busy. They were an army of informants who basically stopped all of the fun. When they weren't busy pissing on the chips of boozers, they spent their time hanging out in places frequented by gentlemen and indulging in their own sordid passion for entrapment. Bum, bum, bum. Gin for me, gin for you. It's a gin interview. Whoa! 
And here I am in the 18th century with Kathy Caton, co-founder of Brighton Gin. Kathy Caton, what are you doing here? Traveling in time and with my heaving bosoms and the whole lot. Amazing. Just what I like to hear. Tell me, Kathy, in floriology, which is the language of flowers, juniper means, and it's no word of a lie, sucker. I was wondering, um, as a lesbian who co-founded Brighton Gym with loads of other genderqueers and lesbian, is that why? <laughs> I think it's I think it's it's spiritual destiny. Um, listen, I do want to ask you a question. In the history of gin and during the gin craze, it's ended up that gin's got quite gendered, like we say, you know, mother's ruin. And uh, is is there a reason for that? It's a really, really fascinating thing because when you think about the the contemporary gin, it's so ungendered. It's the most ungendered spirit that there is. I think it's part of its contemporary success. But certainly when you kind of go back, and I've been going back through my, my history books and looking back to the 18th century when the word gin first came into common usage and all the way through the history of gin, there's been this kind of recurring motif about deprivation, um, this assumption that only the poor drank drank gin, and very much this kind of association with, uh, and there are different identities of this this kind of female identity of this old boozy bawdy crone known as Madame Geneva, Queen Gin, Mother Gin. There's the whole mother's ruin thing, but yeah, there's this particular association, even though in the gin craze, everybody. Everybody was drinking gin and generally either by the shot or the pint uh, from babies and toddlers up to, you know, throughout all society. It might have been that, you know, the upper classes decided to uh, be a bit more discreet about their consumption, but consuming they were. But, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing about it's identified with this old lush. Yeah, I, I wondered because the to drink gin back in the day in the 18th century, you would have used a, a little glass Whereas before then, there'd been like big, heavy beer tankards, right? So maybe it had something to do with that, that there was sort of a, a new daintiness, a way of showing off with, with your gin glass, maybe? Yeah, and I think also there were things that there were uh, gin peddlers out in the in the streets. So kind of particularly focusing on London, which is where we know the most about who was drinking gin and, and why. And women peddling gin in the streets uh again kind of by the by the shot so things that could be knocked back very very quickly in a furtive sort of way but i think also there's uh this association with with juniper now warning there's going to be a word mangling coming up uh so juniper that which is the signature and key botanical of gin if you've not got juniper and taste of it in there it isn't gin by legal definition but it had a reputation as here comes the word mangling as an abortifacient or abortifacient so basically an association with it could bring about the end the early end of an unwanted pregnancy so before for hundreds of years there's been this kind of association of well you know you if you have your gin and get into an extra hot bath you might be able to bring an unwanted pregnancy to a to a premature end. There's oh, yeah. no there isn't there's no proof for it, or that there are actually lots of proofs about the 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 physical qualities of juniper being that are good for us. But it has this association with something that might. So then there's, there are all of these different things about mother's ruin in there. Ah, uh, that, that no, I mean that's actually really interesting because the Foundling Hospital um, uh, was started in 1749 because there was such a spike 
in unwanted pregnancies coupled with with poverty coupled with like the the boom in in sex work being visibly you know, pub, pub, visible in public, you know, and herein lies all the fancy BBC shows nowadays, like, you know, the harlots and all that kind of thing. So it's it's something that would have been on the minds of many women, unwanted pregnancies. It's before the day and age of being able to just get the pill. So mm. that's really interesting. You, you You touch on something else as well that I'm quite interested in. And you said everyone was drinking gin. So do you think gin is still today um, for, for just, you know, common queers like us or is it just posh people that drink gin, Kathy? Who, who, who drinks Brighton gin? Now, it's obviously, for full disclosure, I've got a very strong, strong opinion on this and I have <laughs> that gin should be for everyone with, from, from, you know, 18 to 100 across. The, the spectrum which should be something that should be enjoyed and reveled in and it definitely shouldn't be something that's about you know being it should be accessible and fun and not wanky and and excluding it should be something that's that's everyone and so you know I'm really proud that in our our little team of people we managed to cover uh, every letter of the LGBTQ plus acronym and that makes me incredibly proud and I think that that's then reflected in the in the spirit it, itself it's about uh, you know inclusivity getting up to no good community all sorts of brilliant brilliant things um, I think it has had bits where it's been uh, a bit wanky it's been very wanky. It's also been <laughs> a lot of kind of negative class association. I mean, can you have a yeah. association with something? I don't know, but there've been lots of very kind of negative class associations with it. There have been lots of you know depictions of the the just the the gin slosh masses and how they couldn't think for themselves and moral moral rot and all of that kind of stuff uh very much kind of a monstering of the particularly of the of the, of the working classes but now i'm saying gin for all ah oh, um, i love that calf what would you recommend we drink our gin with well actually since i've been ma- been making gin i've really uh, kind of in a way gone back to how it would have been sort of back in the the original gin craze which is which is straight neat straight absolutely well you know if, if you've got a frozen little triangular glass and a little twist and olive in it and a little twist of lemon or something becomes a shishi martini but actually it's neat gin basically but but super super cold so i like to just you know sip it neat also though gin and tonic best drink on the face of the planet and even in the middle of february when it's cold and and rainy you can have a a a Brighton gin and tonic with a little slice of orange in it and think of the summer that is to come again and the summers that we will all be enjoying together again. Thanks, Kath. Love you. Love Brighton gin. Oh, you're just a bloody legend, you are. <laughs> Mwah. Oh. Mwah. My hair is quaffed, my garb refined, the beefsteaks call me phony, but I'm a teedly dull divine. My name is Macaroni. Where the fuck are we, AJ? Hello, darlings. Can I help? Ah! It's only Neil fucking Bartlett. We are here because it's time for this podcast's famous queer flashback where it's a bit like Face Magazine being digitally archived or young millennial folk adopting 80s fashions. That's 1980s, not 1780s. You scared the crap out of me, love. 
<laughs> oh, now I don't mean to do that, EJ, and it's lovely to see you. Oh, well, thanks for coming back in time with us, darling. Listen, I believe that you are a Molly aficionado. Is that right? Would you have been a Molly or a macaroni, darling? Okay, would I describe myself as a Molly aficionado? I would say I'm an amateur in the true sense of the word. I've always loved the stories of the Molly houses. They totally sound like my kind of place. And I wish I could have visited one of them. I really wish we could time travel. And I was very lucky when I was a young queer in London, when I arrived in London in the early 80s, 82, 83, the very brilliant work of the gay historians uh, Alan Bray and Richter Norton who were discovering this treasure trove of the records of the Molly Houses was just beginning to appear in print and I trotted along to gaze the word and bought myself a copy of a it it's a very boring sounding title a history of homosexuality in renaissance england it's a deeply <laughs> it's a fucking sexy and fantastic <laughs> book and in it i discovered that there used to be these places where men who like to take it up the arse used to get together in the evenings carouse and cavort and drag up and do unspeakable things to each other with live music and alcohol thrown in. I mean, what is not to like? And the other <laughs> thing, the other thing that so stirred me when I was a baby gay was this amazing fact that because I grew up in a small town in the south of England, never mind the only gay in the village, I didn't even know the word gay. Yeah, um, right. And yeah. suddenly I was being told that around 1700 in London, there were all of these places. There was a whole network of these amazing places called Molly Houses. I mean, people say there were more gay bars in London in 17. 20 there there were in 1980 and that kind of blew my head off um and it still thrills me and now even better my husband and i have a flat in clerkenwell and we live 10 minutes from field lane which is where the most infamous and raucous of the Molly Houses, Mother Clapp's Molly House, was. And there were two more. There was actually one on the street corner next to us, just down Clerkenwell Road. So I feel very plugged in to that history. I love them. I'm really struck by how personal this history that's hundreds of years ago is to you it's almost like you're you're finding your place by traveling back through time and and locating a sense of self in the past it is true and it's true in a very specific way because we had these evil naff right wingers called the society for the reformation of manners who were basically shopping men who use the molly houses to find each other love each other and fuck each other and that because the police were involved and because there were law cases we have incredible detail 
of the Mollies' lives. Um, we And we have their words, even, the words that they spoke in court. So it for me, it was never like some dry-as-dust thing from the library. It was, this guy said... Um, so I went in the bar and they were all dressed up as women and they were all calling each other's women's names. And of course, I went, hello, I spent last night in the back bar at Heaven because this is the 1980s. And hey, presto, I knew lots of people um, who called each other by women's names. I knew lots of people who were either in drag or in bits of drag or experimenting with drag. And there was and there was none of the... Um, so you have to identify yourself. What are you? No one was talking about, oh, we are on a journey to discover our sexuality. Everyone was just going, fucking hell, look at the arse on that. Excuse me, I'm going to take him off to the cottage and give him a quick blowjob before Belinda Carlisle comes back on the sound system. So <laughs> the, the, the world of the Mollies felt very sweaty to me very alive i mean i and i loved the the way that the records there's this tangling of the very public and the very intimate so they because there were so many of them and people must have you you twig People must have known where they were. You could find them. It wasn't like it wasn't like contemporary Amsterdam when you you could look in through the plate glass window and see what's going on in the gay bar. They were to a degree hidden, but people did know where they were, and people could find each other in those places. And they they were the place where people really, really met each other. It's very clear from the law records that the Molly stood up for each other. I think that's that was the other thing that I really recognised in the Molly houses. One of the things that was happening, so like when Zed and I first knew each other back in the 80s, back in the drill hall, you really, really looked after each other. You had these intense friendships, you, often with people who you only knew because you hung out in the same bar as them, but you really, really had each other's backs and you commiserated. If someone had been queer bashed or they were having trouble with their family or then as the AIDS epidemic began to grow its teeth and bear its claws, we really looked after each other. So there was this fantastic interface of the sort of hilarious business of everyone getting their drag together and having the drag life and the dressing up life. And and there was the romantic business of falling in love with people who you'd met on the dance floor. And there was this community network of people having each other's backs. And it seems to me that all of those things were really going on in the Molly houses. And also because when I was, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but I love this stuff. When I was a teenager, I I was lucky enough to have a boyfriend. When I was 14, I was lucky enough to have a boyfriend who was 28, 29. And very occasionally I would be at his house with 
a bunch of men who I then thought were very old. In other words, they were 30, <laughs> 30 something. The days, they? And they all called each other mistress, Mrs. This, Mrs. That. They all had drag names. And so when I read about the Molly houses, I didn't think, oh, gosh, that's very funny. They called each other Madam and Princess and Mistress and Molly and all of that. I just went, oh, that sounds like a bit like having dinner with John and Mistress Granger. Yeah, I, fi <laughs> I, I find it a pathway. That, that stuff for me is a pathway into the storytelling as well as a trans guy because I locate the gender nonconformity as something really open and alive and fun and cheeky and exploratory. And, and, and I like that we don't necessarily have to label it, you know, that there's, there's something that all mixes in between the sex and the dress and the fun and the community and, and, and Absolutely. it makes you feel close to everyone, you know, like not like there's a, a tribe of trans and a tribe of gay and a tribe of lesbian and a tribe. No, it feels much messier and yeah. raucous. I, I always felt probably the place that, we, I mean, I was going to the Bell and I was going to the London Apprentice. Those were my places. And they did have that atmosphere of uh, everyone in Lock the Doors and Now Let's Party. Something else that uh, is really wonderful in the records is you often get a list of the names, the Molly names yeah. of who's been arrested or who's been shot. And it's all princess this and uh, mistress yeah. so and so. And then you find out who they were. So it will say Mistress Black-Eyed Susan, who was actually a 47-year-old butcher. Butcher, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and one of the things about the Molly houses is they weren't, uh, they were very mixed up. They were very mixed up class-wise, but also yeah. they were predominant. They, and often the, the Mollies were butch. Um, and I was brought up to believe that there was there was a very strict the the straight mythology of the effeminate puff because when I was a kid on telly you had often straight comedians pretending to be effeminate puffs or you had the very great Larry Grayson or the much less great John Inman in my humble opinion where you had the wispy <laughs> lisping willowy or the Kenneth Williams who yeah, was very great. very effeminate and it seems the Mollies even though they may have been wearing wigs and dresses and mantuas and powder and dancing a country jig to the violin they were actually the equivalent of picking getting picked up by a lorry driver and yeah, right. I found that really um well it hit my spot sexually let's be honest but also <laughs> I just it bust open that theory that the world Forgive me for using the old language that I grew up, that the, the world was divided into butch and bitch. And of course, yeah. the reality of gay culture has always been that butch and bitch are completely fluid and elastic, uh, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, elastic and often uh, the excitement 
excitement of sex and also the excitement of being part of an after dark queer life is the is the minute by minute explosion of those categories you know when you see some absolutely hardcore muscle bound thug and someone <laughs> whispers in your ear heavy bottom you know it's fantastic and equally when there's some kind of very pretty slender bossy 19 year old and you go wait a minute you're not at all what you look like and I I've always got the vibe from the records of the Molly houses that there was a lot of that game playing going on I, I I love that that how it's it's so interesting to me how how those the boundaries of going back like by going back we can explode these boundaries do you know what I mean um Zeb you knew Neil from way back is that right I I did yes uh, I I think the first the, I had a job at the drill hall in the late eighties so over thirty years ago now and. Uh, and Neil was, of course, naked, um, as as he often is. And the job that I'm doing at the moment, um, I, I saw a, I saw a picture of Neil with his cock out, and and I was reminded that that in fact that's that's over thirty years I've been looking at, at your knob, oh, Neil. Oh, oh see, it's all lovely. one big loving Molly family. <laughs> Isn't it <just>? and, <laughs> and if you if you remember, said that when the show that I performed naked, I had uh, my backing singers in the yes. show. I mean, my fellow three uh, actors were Betty Bourne, who was the butchiest queen in gay history, <laughs> a powerful, powerful, dominant person, but True. who on stage always had the best drag. Yes. There was Regina Fong, who was an ex-West End <laughs> chorus girl. Uh, absolutely in the tradition of British burlesque high comedy drag and both Betty and Reg uh, common as muck. I mean, borderline <laughs> gutter, most of them, but two big, strong guys. I mean, Reg was big. And yeah. Ivan, Ivan, who was on the door at the fridge for a whole generation of gay men, of clubbers in London. Ivan, who, when I met him, could seriously pass as the young Joanna Lumley if he felt like it. I mean, I've seen straight I've seen straight guys walk into lampposts because they were turning <laughs> to look at uh, Ivan. He dressed soul. in the show as a kind of pre-Raphaelite stunner with long red hair and his gorgeous hands and face and a figure to die for. And Ivan's the son of a miner from Nottinghamshire. So... <laughs> That mix-up of using using drag and the notion of after light, after dark, and also the fact that we were all in the room together. You know, the drill hall had, what, 180 seats maybe? So it wasn't some vast place. We were all in there. Everyone hung out the bar. And there was a fantastic sense of creating your own world. And I've always got that from the Mollies as well, that they were saying, if you are having problems living in the real world don't sweat it too much what you do is you set up these support cells 
dotted around town where we run the world and you can be who you want to be um, and you can fuck who you want to fuck and you can talk how you want to talk and you can scream how you want to scream and you spend the odd night there and you know what that will get you through the rest of the so-called real world and I've always thought there was a lot to be said for that. Oh, Neil, you're such a darling. You've made me remember what life was like before lockdown. We're all missing it very much. Can you imagine what it's going to be like after lockdown when we are (laughs) able to throw our arms around each other? And we're going to do it at Princess. We're going to have a big (laughs) Princess ball and it's going to be amazing, Neil Bartlett. Thank you for your time, darling. I love you. (laughs) Thank you both. Thank you both. Zed, how lovely to see you and hear you across the years. And carnage is exactly what we all need. (laughs) And I'll be there. I'll see you on the other side, my darling. See you at Princess. Oh, it's been so lovely to see your face this time, Neil. Bye. Bye. And now, from the world's poshest museum, we've nabbed our very own trans curator, screw you, workplace diversity, we demand deviancy. It's Zorian and the four Ps. Pamphlets, places, people and pornography. This episode, it's... Pamphlets. So um, (laughs) these are, you know, cheaply made street publications. The word really just means an unbound, non-periodical book. So it could just be a one-off publication. And a lot of them were concerned with gender transgression and morals around queer sex. Um, So some of the earliest ones which have been studied are from 1620. One of them was called Hic Mulia or the Man Woman, uh, which railed against, uh, quote, the insolency of our women and their wearing of broad-brimmed hats with their hair cut short or shorn. And then uh, pamphlets were a hotbed of responses as well. There were, you know, always response pamphlets which came back. And there was another one called Hake Veer, which uh, pointed out feminised styles worn by men. And um, Veer, is interesting, V-I-R, has come around hundreds of years later as a non-binary pronoun, isn't it? V and Veer, so that's fun. So coming into the time period that we're talking about in the 18th century, there's tons of these kinds of cheap publications going on um, with titles like Hell Upon Earth or The Town in Uproar from 1729. Uh, And in in this one, they list lots of types of... um, pick-up lines that the Mollies use on each other, like, and I quote, where have you been, you saucy queen? If I catch you strolling and caterwauling, I'll beat the milk out of your breasts, I will so. Um, And it has all their sort of appointments and places of where they would pick each other up and cruising grounds appear in all these pamphlets. So Lincoln's Inn Fields is a cruising hotspot, as is Royal Exchange, uh, Covent Garden, um, many other places. Um... And my favourite pamphlet to end on that particular P is the sort of evil yet cosy sounding title of uh, 1749, which is called Satan's Harvest Home. Ah. <laughs> and it was an anti-effeminacy, anti-gay pamphlet, essentially, but it went over 62 pages of possibilities how you might 
be corrupted uh, basically in the city um and it uh, particularly goes on about opera and how um it popularizes you know italian culture popularizes sodomy and takes men away from what it called their noble warlike moods and in that same one satan's harvest home they reference the game of flats which is described as a new sort of sin um although richter norton found usage of it about a hundred years earlier um but yeah it was called a new game of flats or flats with a swinging clitoris and it was um a you know lesbian lesbian sex basically is what it was all about Oye, oye! This has been another rowdy chapter in the Princess Podcast. Yes, podcast! Our operatic ditties were voiced by Oberon White and written by Dr. Ducky Ben Walters. The music was written and arranged by Jacob Garside. Additional music was composed by Arnold and arranged by David Norman Beard. This podcast was recorded remotely under lockdown and was produced by Simon Levans for Ducky and funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund. I'm EJ. You can see images of all the artefacts we've drawn queer history from on Ducky's website at ducky.co.uk. Stay tuned for our next episode of Princess Podcast. Ha 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 ha!